Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. with us, you know this, we're in the middle of a series called Deep Truths. And um, the reason for this is uh, we feel like during a season where there's so many things uh, flying around, so many different ideas, and, and quite honestly, there's a whole lot of dissension going on. There's a whole lot of disagreement about a whole lot of things. Uh, a lot of different matters. Uh, I said this to the worship team this morning as we were praying together. I said there's a lot of things that we get up in arms uh, about that just don't matter that much uh, in the grand scheme of things. Not that there's not a lot of important things for us to debate and argue argue about. But there's some things um, as followers of Jesus that we can tie ourselves to that ground us. And uh, there's a lot of different iterations or versions or denominations within Christianity. Um, There's been a lot of different movements uh, throughout the centuries that uh, have a lot of different nuances and things like that. Uh, When you talk about beliefs, there's a lot of different nuances and a lot of things to talk about, good things to talk about. And uh, people that love the Lord and love scripture come to different conclusions about that we can find common ground uh, on some things. And so there's a lot of that going on, but there's also some things that have stood the test of time. There are some things like when you call yourself a Christian, if that's what you would uh, call yourselves, there's some things that that means. And uh, it seems like today you kind of have to redefine what do we mean when we say that. Uh, And so I think the best way to do that is obviously go to scripture, uh, but go to the life of Jesus. And then also... Go back to the early church fathers um, to see when the, when the first thing happened, when the ch- first church started, what did they believe? What held them together? And what fueled this thing that still got us gathering here 2,000 some odd years later? And so we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about scripture itself. We've talked about uh, how we look at the Trinity, the, the mystery of God and who he is. We've talked about the mystery of, of Jesus being fully God and fully man uh, at the same time. And last week we talked about sin and how we're uh, estranged from God and how that happens and what that means. And today we're going to talk about uh, Christ's atonement and his bodily resurrection. Christ's atonement and his bodily resurrection. Uh, a couple of disclaimers. First of all, I've got my computer up here, so you know this is dangerous, right? Uh, I don't ever do this, but uh, I am going to open up my computer uh, today because if I get lost in this, uh, what I would like to do is uh, have the privilege of looking at my notes today, um, which I don't do a lot because uh, I, when, when, when we're talking about these things, hopefully they become a, a, a little bit of a natural part of who we are. Uh, the hope is that we're not just talking about academic things, but they're actually becoming a part of our character and a part of our culture. Um, So I'll say this going into this. Uh, When I talk about Christ's atonement uh, and his bodily resurrection, uh, there have been volumes that have been written on this uh, and are still being written on this. Uh, There are a lot of good conversations to be had over that, uh, but there's so much that you can't cover in in one sermon. So what I'm going to try to do today is uh, I'm not going to talk about all the the specific details and we're not going to drill down into everything because granted, whatever your perspective is or your background, if you have no church background or no Christian background or no faith background whatsoever, it's going to raise questions that maybe somebody that's been around some of this stuff, they're going to have 
have different set of questions, or maybe you have a, a particular kind of bedrock belief or, or perspective on how some of this stuff works, um, and somebody else in, uh, in the same aisle as you, uh, same row as you, they might have a, a little bit of a different uh, look on how the process of these things work. And so we can't spend all the time dissecting all that, but what we can do is we can find out a little bit about what brings us together. And uh, what we like to do around here is we, uh, we like to mix school and church, we say, because we should be a learning community. We should be people that are challenged to understand some things. Uh, but we also want to do that uh, in the spirit as well. So that's my disclaimer as we go in. For, so Christ Atonement and bodily resurrection. So first thing I need to do is probably just give you some definitions because you may see uh, the word atonement and ask the question, okay, I've heard that word uh, or I haven't heard that word, what in, but what do you mean when you say that. Well, let me just throw a definition up here on the screen for you because uh, the word atonement, basically a good English translation of that uh, is probably something like reconciliation. All right, we, we use the word reconciliation a lot more than we would use the word atonement, uh, though the, the word atonement is a Bible word. Uh, but when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about a specific kind. We're talking about Christ atonement, Christ reconciliation. And when we talk about that, this is a kind of a working definition that I wanna work off of today. The work of Christ by which he brought humanity and God together in spite of humanity's sinfulness and God's holiness, okay? So this is the reconciliation we're talking about. Um, uh, and, and we're gonna see how that statement, how that reconciliation, how that atonement has a lot of different effects and, and why that's so crucial to who we are. So in order to ground us, I wanna give one quick scripture and we're gonna play off this scripture uh, the entire time. So this is gonna springboard us into this discussion. I think this is uh, a, a, as good of a synopsis of reconciliation of the atonement in a succinct way as you can get in scripture. And it's kind of almost like a flyby statement that the apostle Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. This is what he said. He said, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that, uh, that little sentence by Paul, and we're going to use that uh, as, uh, as a method to talk about Christ's atonement, because uh, you got to have some kind of method to talk about this. There's so many different aspects to it. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to say, let's look at that, qu let's look at that statement, and let's see what kind of questions that that statement answers from the Apostle Paul. I think there's a few. Here's something that you, you may find embedded within that statement. Why was there a need for reconciliation? Why was that even, why was that even a thing? A second question may come out of that was, who was doing the acting or the reconciling? Okay, these are important things. So these are some things that we just brushed by, but uh, let's not miss this, that what Paul was actually saying is he was trying to answer the question of who was the one doing the reconciling. This isn't going to be an important thing for us. The, the third question that I think is going to ground us is, is how did he do it? Uh, whoever was doing the acting or reconciling, how did it happen? Well, what was, what was going on and, and how did it work? Uh, when we gather together and we sing songs about a living hope, like why, why does that stir our hearts? Why, why is there something about that that tells the story about how we were reconciled to God. And then the fourth and final question I wanna throw at you today is for whom was he doing it? Who was the object 
uh, of the reconciliation and, and what was the end goal of reconciliation. So let's just, let's just break those questions down, okay, for, for simplicity's sake. The first one is this. Let's back up to that first question. Why was there a need for reconciliation? Well, let's drop back to what we talked about last week. And I'd encourage you, if you weren't here last week, uh, we're not going to spend as much time, uh, I think, dissecting this because that was all of last week um, that we talked about that. And so we're not going to spend all the time. But I'll just make the statement that was the uh, kind of the consensus statement that we made last week, that humanity is both essentially good and existentially estranged from God. Uh, this is the tension that we live in. We live in the fact that you were created in the image of God, to bear the image of God for the goodness of God, uh, that you were given a role within creation to bear that image and reflect that image within creation. Uh, and that in God's good creation, he created a very good plan uh, to reflect his glory within that and things to work in an essentially good way. But because of our uh, idolatry of turning away from God and turning to ourselves uh, through the temptation towards sin, when we gave in to sin, what did we do? We became estranged from God. We took the good, perfect plan of God and the environment by which that we uh, lived as human beings, and we began to taint it with the toxicity of our selfishness, our greed, our sin, and our disobedience and idolatry toward God. And that has been far-reaching. And sometimes I, I think it's good to hang out here for just a second because sometimes when we talk about sin, we just think about morality. And uh, it is certainly uh, uh, moral, okay? Sin it has a moral um, uh, foundation to it. But here's the thing. Uh, it may not be less than morality, but it is so much more than morality, and here's why I would say, I want to suggest to you that this need for reconciliation, you feel it in a lot of different ways. You don't just feel it morally. You, you feel it in a lot of different ways. And what you find is that there's a lot of different ramifications that sin and this estrangement from God takes shape in. And you have to treat it on every level that um, on every level that it exists in order to really get to the heart and solve the sin problem. So let's talk about the ramifications of sin uh, for humanity first, okay? Because this is gonna set our course to understanding what the atonement did. The first is you have to understand the atonement individually. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, you can jot this down. Each person is culpable for their sins and deserving of the consequence of that sin. Okay, uh, this means that there is an individual component, there's an individual responsibility. You are culpable for the sin that you do. Um, that this is, this is part of who you are. You are responsible for your sin. You're held responsible for what you do. And you're deserving of that consequence. Now, when we talk about the consequence of sin, there's two ways to look at the consequence of sin personally, okay? Um, just for, for the sake of conversation. The first one is organically, and the second one is judicially, okay? Organically, the Bible talks about this and describes it well, and, and, and you know this to be true, is that there are natural consequences, organic consequences, that are brought in to sin itself. That means that... Um, if there is a, uh, uh, if you're going to the Grand Canyon, you know, and there's a sign that says, do not step over the railing. And you say, well, you can't tell me what to do. You know, I'm going to step over the railing. Well, you step over the railing. You certainly have the latitude to do that. You can certainly do that. But if you do not obey uh, the, the sign and you step over the railing and you fall into the Grand Canyon, guess what? There's an organic consequence to that. 
Uh, that's not legal. Like you're not going to go to jail because you did that. But what you are going to do is you're going to suffer the ill effects. Um, and if you fall into the Grand Canyon, my guess would be they'd be pretty severe. You know, uh, they would probably lead to death. This is just natural. We see this in a lot of different play, ways. This is the spiritual dynamic of the organic consequence of sin. But there's also, Scripture talks about, a judicial consequence. That there is a standard, there is uh, a law that governs the way that we're supposed to behave, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to treat other people, um, how we're supposed to act and think about relationships and uh, uh, people of the opposite sex, how we're supposed to do uh, all kinds of things, how we're, what we're supposed to do with money and not do with money. I mean, there's all kinds of things that Scripture outlines for us. Uh, and, and, and it makes sense that there are some laws that are out there that govern God's good creation. It makes sense because it's like there's laws of physics that govern the physical universe. There would also, if you follow the logic, there would be spiritual laws that govern how we're supposed to work in a metaphysical way, uh, how we're supposed to enact in all these different things. And so when we break a law, um, when we uh, go faster than the speed limit or we do something that uh, society has said is not okay, uh, in this case, what God has dictated or orchestrated, then we cross an established boundary, we trespass, we sin against God, and there's a judicial aspect to that. And so we are individually culpable for those sins. And that's what, in our context, that's what most of us grew up hearing. Okay, uh, I think maybe in a, in a southern churchy environment, uh, that's probably not super uh, new news to you. But what might be news to you is what the scripture also talks about, because the scripture doesn't just talk about your individual culpability for your sin. It also, also talks about that there is a corporate dynamic. There's a corporate dynamic to sin. And you can say it this way, this is just the way I worded it, humanity as a whole was subjected to the consequences of sin. So it, it's not just that you bear individual responsibility. Uh, some people treat the gospel as, okay, well, that thing, that prayer, prayer you pray or that thing you believe so that you can go to heaven when you die. Uh, and while your personal individual aspect to your own responsibility to sin is a big part uh, of what uh, this ramification is, it's not the sum total that we are in a fallen um, fallen state. We are in a broken, connected system of humanity. And scripture talks about that, that humanity as a whole fell when Adam and Eve, our, our namesakes, or the, the first uh, humans, uh, as scripture tells the story, when they first sinned. And so there's a corporate aspect, but even that doesn't tell the sum total of what sin is. Not only is there an individual uh, ramification, and not only are there corporate ramifications. There's also what I would just call cosmic ramifications. Um, this is when all creation itself was subjected to the powers of darkness and evil. Okay. Um, you, you know this, right? Like you, you look around the world and, and, and there is just a sense that there is just evil present in the world that you can't quite put your finger on. That's not just, um, it, it, it's not just uh, a part of being uh, animals, being uh, uh, mammals, you know, it, it, it's not that. There, there's something at work when you look at the genocide that has happened uh, throughout history, when you look at the pain and suffering uh, that has taken place uh, in so many different ways. 
it's almost palpable, the, the, the feeling that there is an evil that is present within the world. Well, Scripture accounts for that. I think that we as um, thinking people have to figure out how do we account for that. And that, that goes deeper than just kind of some trite phrases and, hey, we're all imperfect. Hey, we all make mistakes. There is a real sense that there is something deeper uh, at work in our world. And because there is something that you all feel and I feel, we have tried to come up with all kinds of remedies for this, haven't we? I mean, they've all failed, but in the end, we've all tried some different remedies for each one of these problems. Uh, think about some of them with me for just a second, because I think this will help us to understand it. There's some inward ways that we've tried to remedy this. Uh, think about it this way. When you've experienced greed in your life or lust um, or anger or bitterness, or, or maybe it's just a severe anxiety you probably perhaps have tried ways to stem that. You've made commitments, uh, you've read books, you've gone to therapists, and all those things are things you should do, okay? Uh, none of these are bad things. But what you will find at the end of the day is that there's a certain point where they reach futility, where there's something deeper going on. There is more than you can just read about and self-correct on these things. And you've tried, to, you've tried to bridge the gap. There's, there's times when you say, I know I shouldn't be worried about that, but I just am. It doesn't make any logical sense, you know? Uh, you say things like that because that's the way you feel. Well, that is part of the ramifications of sin. That's you feeling sin. This is deeper than morality. This goes to the core of who we are and what we were created to be. And we've got to try to fix it. Sometimes we do it socially. We, we, we try to attack the corporate nature of sin um, in, in social ways, and we should. There's a, lot of different, um, there's a lot of different things that are going on out there, a lot of good, uh, good nonprofits. Uh, there's a lot of philanthropy that's going on there. Um, politically, there's a lot of different people that are trying to do different legislations to help in certain ways. Um, there's all kinds of things that people are trying to do to um, push back against racism, to push back against uh, human trafficking, to push back against the orphan crisis, to push back on all these ills of society that we experience. How do you how do you fix generational poverty? Well, people give their whole lives to try to figure that out because there is something at work among us that needs to be fixed. And we all see that and we try to fix it in different ways. Well, that has something to say about Christ's atonement. That has something to say about his bodily resurrection. We've tried it medically. Um, I don't, my mind went this past week to um, the realization that uh, there, was a guy, there was a famous uh, guy that was on a TV show. Uh, and I, do y'all remember, this is dated, but do y'all remember The Biggest Loser? Do y'all remember that show? Oh, maybe. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you what I used to call that show. Um, but <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other thing. But uh, there was a guy on there, and he was like the, the guy that was the quintessential. I mean, he was working hard. He was showing everybody how to work out. He was helping everybody to lose weight and get healthy and stuff like that. Well, if you follow, I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, I do know this about him, that he suffered a severe heart attack. Uh, he looked like to be the pinnacle of health, you know? I mean, he worked out uh, religiously. Uh, he ate right. But there was something deeper that goes on. And... Here's what that means is that you can be of, do everything to take care of yourself and we can make advances medically and we should. But what we also know that you can only increase lifespan so far. 
that you can only raise the infant mortality rate so far. That there are some things that are limits that are placed on us that all the medical advances that we've amassed, and they're, they're, they're fantastic, the things that we've done, they can't stem the tide of the brokenness. And if you go even go farther than that, if you go environmentally, if you look at uh, the catastrophic nature of what's happened within our environment, about how we have learned to consume our environment rather than be caretakers of it as we were designed to be. And we've abused the environment. And you can look at the stories and you can see what's happened. And we try to come up with plans to uh, recycle and do all kinds of things, carbon emissions, all these things to try to fix some real problems that are going on within the world. Why do we do all that? Well, we've got to come up with a remedy because we all feel and sense that there's something real going on at a very deep level. And we deal with it on a lot of symptomatic levels. But the question is, is what does Scripture say about that? I mean, what does Scripture tell us about where we all feel the pain? Not just in moral ways, but in every single aspect. So what we've got to figure out then is, well, let's go back to that question. If that's the problem of why is there a need of reconciliation is because we all feel the brokenness and we experience the brokenness and it's very real. Then the question we're going to ask secondarily is who is doing the reconciling? Well, if our remedies don't work, okay, ultimately, if they're, if they're going to reach a limit, then who's going to fix the problem? Well, in Paul's estimation, he would say that God was going to have to fix the problem. Now, one of the most famous scriptures, common ground probably, one of the most famous scriptures that you've ever heard, you probably learned it if you grew up in church or if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably seen it on a sign at a football game, John three sixteen. How did God do this? Well, he had to be motivated. What motivated God? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the New International Version uh, uh, terminology for that. For God so loved the world that God loved the world enough to enter into the brokenness and to send his one and only son. Now, I say this, I want to pause there because there's another translation I want to read because I think that this is where a lot of people, this is where a lot of, there's a lot of divergent opinions about this and where we arrive at some really dangerous understandings of Christ's atonement. There's another version I want to present to you, and this is what I hear a lot. This is the TFV uh, version. For God so hated the world that he killed his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Y'all saying, what is TFV? That is the fake version, okay? That is, <laughs> that doesn't exist. But it does exist because this is why some people have read John 3.16, now think about this for, with me for a second, is if God is doing the acting and God is motivated, what is God motivated by? I, I, say, this, I say this because there might be some of you in here, when you come into a place like this and you start to hear about this atonement, um, maybe you're from a generation, a generational thing, or it's an experience thing. When your picture is that there is this God that's angry with us and he wants to kill us, but somebody better step in the way or God's going to kill you. If that's your perception of God, many of you say, well, that's exactly why I want to have nothing to do with this. I grew up in an abusive environment. I see people abusing power. I see this anger, like this capricious God that seems like he's so angry 
with us? Is that a God that we want to serve and follow? And many people, and in droves, many people are saying, no, that's not the God that I want to follow. But that is a misreading of Scripture. That's a misreading, that's a fake version. Because that's saying that God hates you so much that he has to kill somebody to vent his anger off of you. Now, if you've wrestled with that dichotomy uh, or that tension, welcome to the club. Many people in the world have. But what does scripture actually say about the atonement of Christ? Does it say that, does it say that God so hated people that he killed his only son? No, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This speaks to God's motivation and it speaks to what he did because this is where our Trinitarian discussion comes back into play. Um, when we talk about the son, what we're really talking about is God himself. That if the son is fully God, then what we're really saying is, is not that God carried out his anger toward another being, but what God did was God assumed the responsibility that was due to you individually, corporately, and cosmically so that you could then go free from that. This is a motivation of love. This is ex exaltation of God himself. This is God reconciling the world through Christ. Uh, in John's gospel, he, he carries that thought forward and he really drives it home by saying, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So here's that we live in a state of condemnation. You experience it and feel it on every single level, individually, corporately, and cosmically. You come up with remedies that you can't, uh, you, you can't in, the, in and of themselves get to the solution of those things. You can't be good enough. You can't fix the social ills. You can't uh, fix all the medical problems. You can't fix the environment. You can't do all this stuff. Why? Because there is something deeper that's going on that is not just constrained to church services and it's not just constrained to particular strains of denomination. This is a human experience. So what was, what was Christ doing? What was God doing by sending and giving his only son? Well, here's what I would say. This is the way I would, this is my sentence. So if this is bad, don't uh, blame anybody else but me. Um, this is what he was doing. He was addressing human sin on every level of its consequence in order to reconcile the relationships between God and humanity, which is where we started with, right? That's atonement, and produce a new creation. That's the individual level, that you can become a new creation, that he would create a new humanity. That is the corporate implication. And then he would also instill and initiate a new kingdom, which is the cosmic realm of things on earth as it is in heaven. So what Christ was doing by coming in the flesh, by going to the cross and going through the resurrection was more than just paying for your individual responsibility for your sins. It wasn't less, but it was so much more. And so a Christian, a historic Christian understanding, a classical Christian understanding is to say that there is something that we have to look at that is deeper than just the tweetable phrases and the pithy sayings that you can walk out of a church service with. How does faith in Jesus address the world's deepest problems? That's the question we're trying to answer. And so the question becomes, well, how does one man 
um, dying on a cross, coming in the, in the first century. Uh, we're going into Christmas. How, well, we celebrate this whole thing. Well, how in the world does that change anything? I mean, think about just the cross for a second. There were thousands of people that the uh, Roman Empire crucified on crosses. I mean, on the very day that Jesus died on the cross, there were two other individuals on either side of him. We know this. Why, was their, why did their death not affect us, but the one in the middle did? How did he reconcile us? Well, remember our, our foundational passage for today, 2 Corinthians 5, 19? The how did he do it? Well, he did it in Christ. How did that occur? Well, I'm gonna give you two words, okay? I think he did it in two ways, okay? The first way is, what I'm gonna say is the, in, uh, the incarnation, and the second way is uh, inauguration, okay? Uh, those kind of went together. I didn't actually mean for that to happen, but uh, hopefully I'll get extra credit for making them rhyme. Um, incarnation. The earliest Christians operated with understanding that Christ had become incarnate. That means that he became God in the flesh to do battle with the devil and the forces of evil that hold the world captive, resulting in individual salvation, okay? So what did the earliest Christians believe? Not, not, not does, uh, the person that you follow uh, on Twitter or Instagram or download podcasts. They're all well and good, but let's just not ask that question for a second. Let's say, what did the first people that believed in Jesus, what did they think was happening? Well, what they thought was happening was, is that they, were, they understood that Christ actually came in the flesh to do battle, to go to war on our behalf on a cosmic level, and that what he was doing actually did pay dividends in the individual level of our sin. He was fighting a cosmic battle that had corporate and individual ramifications. And so that's the way they understood incarnation. If you read any of their writings, this is what they thought. The other thing that they thought is they, and, and they got this, uh, it, it makes sense that there was the uh, inauguration of a kingdom of God. The earliest Christians operated with the understanding that Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, uh, Jesus said this himself. The kingdom of God is hand. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. We, we, all these different things that, that teach us and remind us that what Christ was doing was that he was bringing heaven to earth. And he was saying, what we're gonna do is we're gonna fix what's going down, what's well, going on down here. He's gonna enter into the mess. And it takes an incarnation, but it also takes an inauguration. It takes not just God coming in the flesh for your personal sins, but it also causes and, and is going to mean that for the consequence of corporate and cosmic sin, that what God's going to have to do is he's going to have to wage a deeper battle. So can I, can I give you a couple of uh, suggestions of, you're like, where, where do you get that from? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say two things, okay? There's a lot we could talk about. Uh, I could get into a lot of different names from a lot of different uh, theology textbooks and things like that, and I'm not going to go that route, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you, we're just going to hang on to Scripture because that's what this is about. What does Scripture actually say? Well, uh, the background or the backdrop for this early Christian understanding was rooted, I, I think you can go, go to two really simple places, okay? One is Jesus himself, and the second one was the early church. 
So I'm going to give you the, the one from Jesus himself first. If you remember the story, um, and a lot of gospels tell this kind of story, but Jesus is casting out demons, he's healing people, and this was met with a lot of accusation toward Jesus. People didn't know how Jesus was doing this stuff. I mean, if, if you heal someone that has uh, been blind since birth or anything like that, they're saying, well, how does he do this? Well, he must have command over evil forces. And if he has command over evil forces, that must mean that he's, he's in league with the enemy, right? Because how, why would they obey him? Why would he have the power to tell a demon to leave? Or why would he tell, have the power to tell sickness to leave? Well, the understanding of that really came to a head in one specific um, little narrative uh, in Matthew chapter 12. And there was a, a, a kind of this... Uh, altercation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And Jesus, it says in Matthew 12, 25, that he knew their thoughts. And so what does he say? He says to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So he's kind of attacking their logic, right? It's like, well, if we go with your, your take on this situation, then it makes no sense. And so he, he kind of builds that thought out in verse 27 through 29. He says this, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice the kingdom of language, the kingdom language that he's inserting. He's saying that what you see here. It is me going in, I'm saying me, Jesus being me. What you're seeing here is I'm coming to bring heaven to earth. This is what it looks like when reconciliation happens. This is what my kingdom looks like. It is a restoration and reconciliation of what was originally designed, the good, perfect plan of God. And then he says these words to close this thought out. And this is where I'm gonna hang out for just a second. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house? What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, what Jesus is essentially talking about is he's talking about the fact that there is a ruler of this present age that took that role in Genesis chapter three that this cosmic darkness and evil that we experience, that there is a, there's a source for that. And he's treating this earthly creation like this strong man's house. He's saying that Satan is the strong man and he's saying his possessions are all those that stand condemned because of their idolatry. And if you take that and match that up with just John three sixteen, then what was God doing? God was coming to rescue those of us who are condemned and plunder the strong man's house. The possession is you and me. And what was God coming for in Christ? He was coming for you and he was coming for me. But if he's going to do that, what's he going to have to do to get you? He's going to have to bind the strong man. He's going to have to do something with evil, with Satan himself, and with darkness itself. And this is what Jesus was coming to do. And this was so um, ingrained in their thought 
that you see it come out in so many different places. One place that's tucked away that we don't think about it a lot was a, a, an episode in Acts chapter 4, immediately following uh, the resurrection, the ascension, the day of Pentecost, the church is growing. Uh, some of the apostles, they're, they're, they were the ones that saw Jesus die and disbanded, and then they saw him resurrected, and they came back together. And now, man, this thing's exploding because of the resurrection of Christ. They come back together, and now they're arrested by the same individuals that actually saw Jesus crucified, made sure that he was crucified. And so they're in this predicament, right? And this is the way that they understood that situation. Think about this for a second. Acts chapter 4, there's a quote that the apostles make um, from Psalm 2, and this is what they say. What do, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That, that's in quotes because that is um, something they would have memorized. This is quoting Psalm 2. You can jot that down. You can go back and read Psalm 2. And so they're quoting... Uh, this, this passage from Psalm 2, and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So they're praying to God in this situation, and how did they understand the situation that they had observed? They understood that there was a cosmic battle that was going on that was playing out before their very eyes, and they named some individuals. They said, well, there's Herod and there's Pontius Pilate. There's some players in this game, but it wasn't just them. It was also the people of Israel in that very city. Remember how they turned on Jesus? And it was also the Gentiles. So this is, this is an all-skate. This is God covering all the bases. This is saying that everybody's culpable. Everybody was in on the act to kill Jesus. And their understanding, the backdrop for their understanding of what Christ did through his death on the cross and his resurrection was simply this, is that what God was doing was he was going to battle against the powers and the principalities and the forces of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places that Paul would outline in Ephesians chapter six. And then what was happening was is that they were now carrying the message of the kingdom of God, that there is a reconciliation of the old and the new. Well, what God is going to do is he's going to reconcile and restore what was broken by our idolatry. Um, one of the first people to talk about this was a guy named Origen. Um, and this is how he said it. He says this, this is a quote from him. He says, then he binds the strong man and despoils his powers and principalities and leads away the captives which had been seized and were being held by a tyrant. So what was Jesus doing? Jesus was entering in behind military lines. That's a new picture for Christmas, right? That, that, that's not like all the nice little decoratives and twinkle lights and all that kind of stuff. This is a covert op, you know. This is God going behind enemy lines. This is him going into the strong man's house. And what is he gonna do? He's going to try to free you and me. And what we fail to do with our inward remedies and our social remedies and even our medical and environmental ones, though all those things are things that Christians that follow Christ should be about as part of the new kingdom. What we're essentially saying is that there's going to have to be something bigger that goes on, that God himself in Christ is going to have to reconcile things. How did he do that? Well, all the gospels, while they're so different in the way that they tell the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus, they all have one destination. They might tell different stories to get there, 
But where they all land, they all arrive at one place and they arrive at the cross. That's where they all get to at the end of that. This was their understanding of how God was going to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. How did this one act do this? Well, scripture tells us a lot of different things about it. Um, We're about out of time, so I'm just going to read you a few. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's me and you, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So you see how this works, right? Uh, let me give you a little. Uh, let me give you a little picture diagram. Sin leads to dominion, which leads to death. Okay, that's the consequence, both the legal and the organic consequence of our sin is death. How do we get there? Well, we get there because we are placed underneath another ruler who now is ruler corporately, cosmically within, within this realm that we're in. And so God has to come and restore us back. How does he do that? Well, where sin created a dominion, grace also creates a dominion. And when the grace dominion takes shape, it brings forth life. And so this, is, this covers all the bases. This covers the individual, the corporate, and the cosmic ramifications of our sin. And, and Paul himself talked about this, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the best places you can see it uh, in, in a really uh, clear way, I think, is in Colossians chapter 2. Jot this down real quick. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. If you skip down to verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. You see, that was the dominion. Dominion of sin leads to death. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But watch what happens in the second part of this. For he forgave all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, there's that legal ramification, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, here's the thing. There's a couple of different ways that people have talked about atonement. Um, you may know some of the catchphrases. Uh, I'll just give you two quick. I don't have these up on the slide, but um, some people really take the, what's called the Christus Victor approach, and that was probably the earliest uh, take on, uh, on atonement. That was, uh, again, Jesus is king. He's victorious, and I think we'd all agree with that. I think that's what we'd say, and then there's a, what we call a penal substitution uh, model uh, or theory of atonement that is, you know, uh, uh, penal, penitentiary, uh, uh, those type of things. It's talking about the legal thing. And so what God did was he was our legal substitute. And some people have tried to pit those two things against one another. The reason I bring those up is because there's a hot, if, you, if, if you're on Christian, Christian Twitter, uh, first of all, get off of it. But if you are, if you are on it, uh, people will argue about this stuff and write books about it and lob grenades at one another and say, well, they're a heretic or they're a heretic because they believe this. Now, here's the thing. Um, without getting into too much stuff, I'm just going to speak to this real quick because I think that is a conversation that's happening out there. I think my personal thing, you ask me where I land, I land where we embrace both those realities. I think everything I've shared with you today is in scripture. I didn't make any of that up. Like that's all in there. 
And I, I would say that an accurate view of the atonement embraces what I would call a Christus Victor approach as the core that leads to an understanding of the penal substitution model. And here's why I would say that. It's precisely because Christ is our representative, both as Israel's Messiah and humanity's sinless representative that he can appropriately be our substitute. If he's not that, then his death means nothing, okay? That's Christus Victor approach. But it's also precisely because he's our sinless substitute that he can rob the powers of their power and dominion. So if he is not, this is not substitutionary, then he can't accomplish the other. And so people will argue like, is it this or that? Listen, and, and you can say I'm wishy-washy or I'm a moderate, I don't know, whatever you, whatever you would call that. I would say like, if you take one of those out, then it affects the other. But I think at the essential nature of it is that Christ is king. If what we have heard and grown up on is a penal substitution model without the Christus Victor model, what that's essentially saying in my estimation is that we are the point of this whole story. And I don't think that's true. I think that Christ is the center of the story. And I think if Christ is the center of the story, then our atonement, our understanding of atonement must represent that. And so I would lean toward at the core of the foundation is that the Christus Victor model leads us into a deeper understanding of a penal substitution model so that then what we can actually do is we can fully embrace the, the rich vastness, the eternal significance of what Christ did on the cross. That's why Christmas actually has meaning. You know this, right? Because it was both an incarnation and it was an inauguration. It was both those things simultaneously. And you can't have one without the other. And I'll end with this. This is what Paul said. Um, this is probably one of the earliest Christian uh, creeds within the church, if you look in the history of it, in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the, res the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, and so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then he finishes it out, we'll go to the next slide, then the end will come, and when the, he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself. Okay, Paul was just like, okay, okay, I know what you're gonna say. Does that mean God's underneath? You know, this is, he, he dealt with dumb people too, okay? I'm just gonna say that. Uh, who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So that leads us all the way back to where we started. For whom was God doing this? God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, you can jot this down. This is our last slide. This is what I would say. 
Reconciled and renewed. The first thing is we're reconciled to who we were created for. Who are we created for? For the glory of God. To represent the image of God and bear that within creation. We were created for him. Our life doesn't have meaning apart from him. And that's why the reconciliation brings renewal. And renewal is to be renewed to what we were created for. That we actually find our vocation in this great, great world where people are struggling to find meaning and significance and finding it in so many different things. Well, there's really only one place to find it and it's in the person that you were created for and being what you were created to be and doing what you were created to do. And the, the beauty of the story of scripture is that that is what God through Christ inaugurated for you and for me. And so if you're looking for answers, there really is only one and his name is Jesus. And that's why we celebrate the atonement of Jesus and his bodily resurrection. Can we thank the Lord for his faithfulness? Amen. Well, in order to celebrate that and remember that, we wanna take communion together. And so I'm gonna ask you if you would, as we prepare to do that, if you would take the elements out. And this is open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of our church, but this does have to be your testimony. This is a statement of your belief, of your faith. And it, it may be appropriate right now for me just to issue an invitation to you. If something that I've said sparks something in you, there's a good chance that's the Holy Spirit bringing you to reconciliation. All that stuff we talked about and all the minutia, I mean, you're, you're probably in a spot where you're like, well, that's all well and good, but what about me? And the beauty of the gospel is God meets you exactly where you are. And the sacrifice of his son on the cross has individual implications that we can begin to unpack in all different kinds of ways. And so if you've come to the end of yourself, a great way to do it is to come to what he's called us to remember. The church from, from its inception has gathered around the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of a savior. The blood that brings life to us, the life source is Christ's blood himself. How did he do that? His body was broken on your behalf and on my behalf. And so I would like to invite you, if you've never put your faith and trust in him today into what he's done for you, would you just pray a simple prayer right now? I'm not gonna say every head bowed and every eye closed. We're not gonna do all the stuff. We're just gonna give you an opportunity right now just to say simply to God, I believe. I believe. And if that is your confession, then why don't we solidify that today as God's people who have received reconciliation through all the same means, not because of what we've done, but because of his sacrifice. Matter of fact, when Jesus got together with his disciples the night before he went to the cross, there was a moment while they were eating that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And so as we take this, let's pray this prayer together. Would you read this with me? Thank you for the bread. I remember your body that has been broken for me. Let's take. If you'll peel back the next layer, that will give you an opportunity to take the cup. On that same faithful night, he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take. Father, we come before you today as your people. Reconciled by the cross and the sacrifice. Motivated by the love of a father that removed our condemnation. And just like Paul said in Romans 8, now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You have set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And that frees us to live in so many ways, fruitful lives, full of joy and full of relationship, both with you, with our world, and with one another. And so God, make us bearers of that message. Help us, God, to be carriers of the tone of that message and help us, Lord, to see what you see and love what you love. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet and let's sing as we finish about the love of God for us.